verse 8 is where I'm going to pick up in Isaiah 44. We went all the way through verse 8 two weeks ago. I had a little pause as I went to Alaska. I'm back. And so picking up again in verse 8, the Lord says, Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? Or is there any rock? I know of none. Now for God to say, I know of none, that tells us something. There is none. Otherwise He would know of it. There is no other God but our God. I had some really good time on the cruise last week. I was pampered and taken care of for a week, didn't have to think or do anything, just sat around and ate, you know, floated and bloated. It was wonderful. (laughs) And uh, I actually gained, I kid you not, I gained seven pounds. That's a pound a day. That's one prime rib every night. And it just stuck, you know. I got home and stepped on the scale and went, no, really? I'll let Cheryl share if she wants to about her experience, but mine, seven pounds. I don't gain weight like that. Not that quickly, not that easily. Man, incredible. But I'm reminded of something. I was thinking just today, you know, that I gained all this weight and I'm a heavier dude now than I was the last time you saw me. That's okay. Because our God is a heavy God. (laughs) He's a heavy God. He is weighty. There is immeasurable girth to His glory. You know what girth is? It's the measurement around the middle of something. Around the largest part of something. So to measure the girth of the glory of God is impossible. Too big. Too great. Too substantive. Too heavy. Our God is a heavy God. And what I mean by this is the more He reveals of Himself, the more of Him we realize there is to be revealed. The more we know God, the more in awe we are of the God that we don't know, of how much more there is to Him. His nature, His being, His glory is not some ghostly, ethereal thing. Our God is not flimsy. There are no holes in His law. There there are no ways around Him. When you stand before Him, you can't get around Him because He takes up everything. He's massive, He's heavy, He is weighty, far more than seven pounds. I think of Moses saying, I pray to you, show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will make my goodness pass before you. And I'll proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. And I'll show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Do you hear what God just did? He equated his face with his glory. You can't see my glory. You can't see my face. You can't see me as I really am. Because Moses, it would kill you. It would wipe you out. You Bible students know the Hebrew word for glory. It's kabod, means heavy, weighty. When we talk about the glory of God, we are talking about truly the weight of God, the heaviness of our Father. You can't measure the girth of His glory because our God is a heavy God. As we get into Isaiah tonight, there is a difference, a huge difference, that Isaiah points out and God points out through the prophet. A difference between the glory of God, the substance of the one true God, and the hollow emptiness of the false gods and idols of this world. 
I mean, it doesn't even compare. The Lord graciously takes the time to make the comparison, although as we go through the comparison, we start to see idolatry is ridiculous. It's futile. It's just stupid. Compared to, to the glory of the one true God, the substance of God compared to the emptiness of idol worship. And the truth is, with every false deity or idol, when you get to the heart of the matter, there is no heart. It's like the center of an onion. You know, you peel back every layer until finally you peel back the whole onion and there's nothing there. It just makes you cry. <laughs> that's it. You're left with nothing. And that's it. There's no substance. In Isaiah 44, the Lord chips away at the false gods of wood and stone. You can always almost see him there with a little chisel. And he's just hammering away and picking away and chipping away and pieces are flying off until you get to the center of the idol. And guess what? Nothing. There's nothing real. There's nothing true. There's no substance to it. It's just air. Emptiness. I think this is yet another reason why God wants us to go through His Word cover to cover. And hear me on this, it is so critical that we start in Genesis and make our way through the whole Bible because if we come to the New Testament without having gone through the Old Testament, we have a vague understanding of idolatry. We really don't get it. It takes going through the Old Testament Scriptures, walking through the history of Israel, God with His people, and God dealing with the nations before you even come to the New Testament so that when you get there, you start to hear people talk about, the the apostles talk about idolatry, and you go, oh, that's what it means. And the problem is, and I grew up with this, with a lot of New Testament teaching and a smattering of the Old, but not much. When you hear idolatry, you try to translate it. How do we translate idolatry into our culture? We say, oh, my car is an idol. Or my house is an idol. Or material things are my idolatry. And you can make that analogy, that comparison. Most pastors do. I have in the past. You know, gods of wood and stone, wood, my house, metal, gods of iron, my car. Okay, so those are your idols. You know, when was the last time, really, you bowed down and worshipped your car? And so what happens is we sit in church and we hear pastors talk about idols being the material things that we own or we possess, and and it doesn't really work. I mean, it kind of does. Okay, he's talking about materialism. Idolatry is far worse than materialism. Far deeper a thing. And we need to get it. That's why John said in 1 John 5.22, little children, guard yourselves from idols. He's not saying, don't drive a nice car. He's not saying, don't build for yourself a house. It's much bigger than that. What happens is, as we try to translate this concept of idolatry by using our own cultural references, cars, houses, material things, we miss that idolatry is far more insidious. Here it is. Idolatry, as warned against by God in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, idolatry, listen, is worshiping worthlessness. It's worshiping things that have no value, that have no substance to them whatsoever. Worshiping worthlessness. And gang, when we elevate something in our lives or someone who really has no intrinsic value in and of themselves, we verge on, if not commit, idolatry. Let me give you some examples. The Catholic veneration of the saints is idolatry. And to to any Catholic friends, I mean no no disrespect, but the reality is a saint is nothing 
other than what Jesus has done in their lives. You and I are nothing without the Spirit of Jesus in us. Without Him, we're emptiness. We're vain things. If someone emulates or or esteems me for any reason other than Jesus in me, it's idolatry. it's, It's a teenager raising their hands at a rock concert. It's idolatry. Esteeming an empty thing that has no true substance. Oh, the music may be great. The musicians may be great players. The lead singer may have an awesome voice, but when the concert's over and the sound is gone and off they go in their buses and you head home, there's nothing to it. It's emptiness. Scooping water out of the Sea of Galilee and taking it home and putting it on a shelf and calling it holy is idolatry. You know, the things that we do that we elevate or lift up, I got this rock at the Dead Sea. Big deal. We got rocks all over here. You know? Yeah, but I have this... The statue made of olive wood from Bethlehem. So what? It's emulating, esteeming, lifting up these things that have no intrinsic value. And that's the difference. That's the problem with idolatry. That the kabod, or the weight of God, is pure substance. The kabod, His glory, it speaks of His, His intrinsic value, His worth. He is worthy. Why? Because He is. Not because even of anything that he's done, he simply is absolute worth and value. And so we glorify him. And we talk of his weight because there is substance there. And nothing else has that kind of substance. Nothing else. The rest of us and everything that we see, touch, feel, hear, or smell, it's all created stuff. And the only reason there may be any value in any of it is because He made it. Because He did it. Paul says in Ephesians 5, verse 5, No immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. You hear Paul's description of idolatry? He doesn't say no worshiper of an idol. He says no immoral person or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater That's his description of of idolatry. Immorality, impurity, and covetousness. That's a much bigger picture of idolatry than I thought it was. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. So there's another description of idolatry from Paul's mouth. Listen again, um, immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed. Paul says that is idolatry described. Well, that's far more than having a little icon on the shelf or a household god. And I'm not saying that's okay either, but it's much bigger than simply materialism. It speaks of our very spirit. It's esteeming emptiness over the glory and the weight of God. And Paul even equates idolatry with passion. Why? Because if you or I have a passion, if we have passion for anything other than Jesus, it's a passion for something that has no substance. No weight to it. It's a passion for flimsiness. And Paul says your passion should be in one place and one place alone, and that is in Jesus Christ, which is why he says in Colossians 2.17, the substance belongs to Christ. In Jesus there is substance. In Jesus there is worth and there is value. And our value, again, yours and mine, is summed up in Jesus Christ. Any other worship, 
any other elevation or esteem is a deception. And that's what we need to understand before we get to the New Testament and start to talk about idolatry. And so God focuses on this in the Hebrew Scriptures. Through Isaiah, to the Jewish people, He starts to really whittle this away so we might understand that idolatry is insidious, it is deception, and it is the worship of worthless things. Listen as he describes the futility of it. Verse 9. Those who fashion a graven image are all of them futile. And their precious things are of no profit. Even their own witnesses fail to see or know so that they will be put to shame. Who has fashioned a god or cast an idol to no profit? Behold, all his companions will be put to shame. For the craftsmen themselves are mere men. Let them all assemble themselves. Let them stand up. Let them tremble. Let them together be put to shame. The man shapes iron into a cutting tool and does his work over the coals, fashioning it with hammers and working it with his strong arm. And he also gets hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and he becomes weary. What is he saying? Isaiah is saying, number one, the craftsman is common. And this is the first point of the emptiness, the hollowness of idolatry, is the craftsman, the maker of idols himself, is common. He's a mere man. He's no different than anybody else. His craft, therefore, is not about belief, it's about business, which is what he means when he says, who has fashioned a god or cast an idol to no profit. You don't just do it to do it, you do it because you can make some money doing it. Someone who's gifted at being a craftsman and can carve these images... You can make a buck or two off of this. And that's behind the motivation for the idol makers, he says. (laughs) Making a buck is behind the motivation of the idol makers in our culture too, isn't it? The American Idol is there because they want to see young people make it in the music business. It's all about money. It is money, money, money. And watch as many of those contestants on American Idol get run over in their lives by the money-making machine who has fashioned a god or cast an idol to no profit. The craftsman is common. It's not for faith that he makes his idol, it's for food on the table, because he can sell it and make a buck. The makers of fine, idolatrous products are just common men. Isaiah is saying they're just like you, they're just like me. And the idol maker, the source of the idol, is the idol maker. So you're worshiping an idol, but the guy who made the idol gets weak, gets thirsty, gets hungry. He's a man. Why would you worship an idol when the source of the idol is no different than you? Might as well worship yourself, which, by the way, not a good idea. (laughs) He points this out. But with, with Jesus, we have substance. With Christ, there is weight. There is strength. There is power. Without Him, we are futile beings. When we study the book of Job, you remember a guy named Eliphaz, one of Job's three friends. And Eliphaz said some really good things, but he completely misdirected his judgment toward Job. He was wrong in his judgment, though he was right in some of what he said. Listen to one of the things Eliphaz said, Job 5, verse 7. For man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. But as for me, I would seek God. I would place my cause before God, who does great and unsearchable things, wonders without number. Eliphaz is right. Man, in terms of himself, is like sparks flying upward. So put your faith 
in the one who has substance. Lay your burdens, your problems, your cares before God because He can do something. Whereas man cannot. And what Isaiah is asking here is if man is so frail, why would you worship something that is made by him? Makes no sense. Now, the ancients might come back at that and say, well, Isaiah, it's not the idol. It's that the idol represents a God. To which the one true God would say very clearly, there is no God besides me. He says it four times. Isaiah 44, verse 6, verse 8, Isaiah 45, verse 5, and Isaiah 45, verse 21. Four times in our study tonight, you'll hear him say, there is no God besides me. So even if you make an idol to represent a God, there isn't any other God. So you're wasting your time. The substance of a created thing comes from its source. And in idolatry, the source is the craftsman, so there is no substance. Because the craftsman is common. But in the worship of Jesus Christ, not only is Jesus the substance, but listen, He's the source. We worship the substance, the glory of God, because He is the source of that very glory. He comes from nothing else. He comes from Himself. He is the glorious one. And we worship Him. And by the way, don't let it miss or escape you that, that God said, don't make any graven images. He wasn't just talking about idols to other gods. He was talking about idols to himself. Don't make a representation of me because you'll never get close. Don't make something that stands between you and me, something you look at to worship. You know, like the calf, the golden calf of Israel. They didn't build the golden calf in the wilderness to worship another god. They built the golden calf in the wilderness as a representation of Jehovah. They just wanted something to look at when they were worshiping. And you know the result of that. God says, don't even mess with that. Jesus is the source and Jesus is the substance. Colossians 1.16 says, By Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, whether visible or invisible, thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn among the dead. What does that mean? He's the first one to rise from the dead and stay alive. Okay, No one else has done that. Not yet. He's the firstborn from among the dead. So that He Himself will come to have first place, or some translations say preeminence in everything. He's the source and He's the substance of our worship. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says, He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the word of His power. Which means, if you want to look at anything or anyone who can actually and literally and rightly represent God, you look at Jesus. Because He does. The perfect representation. So, the craftsman is common, but the second issue that Isaiah raises is the block of wood is bogus. So now he goes to the idol itself, verse 13. Another shapes wood. And this description is interesting here. He extends a measuring line. He outlines it with red chalk. He works it with planes and outlines it with a compass and makes it like the form of a man, like the beauty of man, so that it may sit in a house. Surely he cuts cedars for himself and takes a cypress or an oak and he raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. Or he plants a fir and the rain makes it grow. And then it becomes something for a man to burn. 
So that he takes one of them and warms himself, and he also takes fire to bake bread. And he also makes a god and worships it. He makes it a graven image and falls down before it. And now he starts to rev up the sarcasm here. Half of it he burns in the fire. And over this half, he eats meat, he, he roasts a roast and he's satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm, I have seen the fire. But the rest of it, he makes into a god his graven image. He falls down before it and he worships. He prays to it and he says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They do not know, nor do they understand. For he has smeared over their eyes so they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot comprehend. No one recalls, nor is there knowledge or understanding to say, well, I've burned half of it in the fire, and I have baked bread over its coals, and I roast meat and eat, and then I make the rest of it into an abomination. I fall down before a block of wood. He feeds on ashes, a deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver himself, nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? A block of wood. That's all it is. The same wood that you use to cook over. The same wood you use to warm yourself by. You take half of it, and you make an idol. It's absolutely ridiculous. Jeremiah, in a parallel passage, Jeremiah chapter 10 God also is going after idolatry through the prophet Jeremiah. And he says this, Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 8, They are altogether stupid. <laughs> and they're foolish in their discipline of delusion. Their idol is wood. He says in verse 10, But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God. He is the everlasting King. At His wrath the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure His indignation. So Jeremiah is down with this. Isaiah is producing a biting satire. He's exposing idolatry as absolutely futile. But it's not only sarcasm, it's also a severe warning on the part of Isaiah. Because what he's saying here when he says that a deceived heart has turned him aside, when he says they do not know nor do they understand, verse 18, for he has smeared over their eyes, gang, shutting your eyes to the substance of God, for the worship of any other thing has a blinding effect. And we see it in our culture, don't we? We shut our eyes to the substance of God and begin to worship pop icons, sports idols, uh, those who stand before us, those who go before us, all these people who puff themselves up with greatness and we're worshiping emptiness. But all the while, it's not just the emptiness that's so bad, it's the fact that we're becoming blind in that worship as we set aside, as we ignore God. Blindness. It's interesting. He says, He has smeared over their eyes so they cannot see and their hearts so they cannot comprehend. That should explain a lot to us. How can a person say there is no God? How can a person walk away from the Lord? Because they have become blind. Their eyes have become smeared. And Isaiah talked about this before. The Lord said in Isaiah 6 verse 9, Go and tell this people, Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. I think that's interesting. He has smeared over their eyes. He is God. In the context here, the person turns to idol worship and God goes, okay, 
and he smears over their eyes. The word smear in the Hebrew is interesting. It's tuach, and it means to overlay or to plaster. So people setting aside the substance of God for the emptiness of idolatry end up with plastered eyes. Eyes plastered shut. There's a direct correlation between the corruption of sin and the crustiness of the eyes. Our eyes get crusted over. God smears over the eyes of an idolater. God smears over, shuts down the heart of someone in rebellion to Him. Why is that? It's very simple. It's not that God is removing a person's free will. It's that He's respecting a person's choices. And if someone says, I want nothing to do with you, he says, fine. And he smears over their eyes. Romans 1.28 explains it beautifully. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Idolatry. It works like plaster over the eyelids. Plaster. Sticking the eyes shut. And there's only one solvent that can take away the plaster. Only one that can break it up or remove it. When John the Baptist was in prison, and he sent to Jesus, he sent word by his disciples to find out, you know, are you the one we expected? John's a little depressed, he's discouraged, there he is behind bars. Ask Jesus, are you the one? I mean, I thought you were, but I just want to be sure. You remember what Jesus said to him? First thing out of Jesus' mouth, he said... Go tell John, Luke 7.22, the blind receive sight. That's a huge hint. In fact, Jesus is pointing John back to Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, which explained that the Messiah would give sight to the blind. And it's not just physical sight they're talking about. Yes, He did give physical sight to the blind. But it's a picture of the true sight that Jesus would give to anybody who turns to the Lord. Remember what Paul said, 2 Corinthians 3, when a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Sight is restored. Jesus said the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And that's the only way to get the plaster off of our eyes that comes from disbelief, that comes from idolatry. Verse 21. God now speaking says, Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. Now God very clearly defines who the servant is here, right? Remember we talked about a few weeks back, the servant songs. We'll be looking at more of those on Sundays. The servant songs that talk about and prophesy of Jesus. But there are also four servant songs in Isaiah that talk about the people of Israel. And every time you come to those servant songs, God makes it clear who He's talking about. One of those servant songs begins in chapter 44. We looked at two weeks ago. Now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel whom I have chosen. Clearly the servant He's talking about here is Israel. Clearly the servant of verse 21, again, is Israel. Jacob. I have formed you, you are my servant, O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud, and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Note that, as bad as Israel's sins were, they were like a heavy mist. Compare the heavy mist of our sin, the thick cloud of our transgression, with the substance of the eternal weight of the glory of God. No comparison. He just blows it away. Our sin is not too big a thing for our glorious King. 
He says in verse 23, Shout for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout joyfully, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into a shout of joy, you mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. Why is he talking about the forest and the trees? Because that's what the idol makers are using for their idols. He says, leave the trees alone and let them praise me like they're supposed to. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob, and in Israel He shows forth His glory. Get this, not only is God the source and the substance, but He is also the Savior. And those are the three key things you see again and again going through this. He's the source of our worship, He is the substance of all glory, and He is the Savior of anybody who turns to Him. Source, substance, and Savior. And we worship Him for all three reasons. Verse 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and the One who formed you from the womb, I, the Lord, am the Maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by Myself, and spreading out the earth all alone. That phrase, all alone, is literally, who was with Me? (laughs) When I created the world, who was with Me? You know what the answer is, don't you? Jesus was. John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. We also know the Spirit was. Because Genesis chapter 1, verse 2 tells us the Spirit was brooding over the face of the waters. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all three present at creation. Through Jesus, all things that have been created, they were created for Him and by Him. And so, Father, Son, and Spirit, God was there. But who else was there? Who was with God at creation? No one. God alone did it. Causing, verse 25, the omens of boasters to fail making fools out of diviners, making wise men to draw back and turning their knowledge into foolishness, confirming the word of His servant. His servant here is Isaiah. And you'll see how he confirms the word in a minute. And performing the purpose of His messengers. That would be the prophets. God here declares Himself the source of all things. (laughs) The craftsman, the idol maker, is nothing. God made everything. The idol maker has to borrow a tree from God who already made the tree. So the one who fashions an idol is nothing like the one who fashioned the earth. The one who fashioned creation. The one who made all things. And He is the source. He is the substance. He is the Savior. And He is the ultimate salvation of Israel in the end of the age. You read this and you almost think, wow, how can you even make a comparison between a bogus block of wood carved by a common man and the glory of God. The distance between the two is eternal. But the Lord doesn't stop there. He goes on and says, okay, I'm going to confirm my word. I confirm the word of my servant Isaiah. I confirm the word of my prophets. And I'm going to tell you right now how I will confirm everything that I'm telling you is absolutely true. He goes on in verse 26. He says, It is I who says of Jerusalem, She shall be inhabited. And of the cities of Judah, they shall be built. And I will raise up her ruins. And the translators added the the word again. Because they are looking back in history. But that's not what God said. He says, I will raise up her ruins. He doesn't use the word again. Wait a minute. Her ruins? Step onto the other side of the fence of history. People of Israel, hearing Isaiah say this, thus saith the Lord, He's going to do this. He's going to re-inhabit Jerusalem, rebuild the cities of Judah. 
And they're looking around going, but we already inhabit Jerusalem. What are you talking about, Isaiah? The cities of Judah? Yeah, well, yeah, Assyria was a threat, but they're gone. They're done. Sennacherib's dead. Jerusalem survived. The temple is still standing. What are you talking about? And from this side of history, we, along with the translators, we know what happened. In less than an average lifespan, Babylon would come in and decimate Jerusalem and exile Judah. We know that's going to happen. They didn't know that. God gives us prophecy. We know the ruined city would eventually, 70 years after that, the people would come back and the ruined city would be rebuilt again. We recognize that. We know it from history. That the people of Judah will move back in. But before we go on, listen to this. The confirmation of this prophecy, which would verify Isaiah as a legitimate prophet, it wouldn't come for 150 years. Why does God do that? If you're the Lord and you send your prophet to speak his word to his people and you want to confirm it to the people, why don't you do something that's going to happen next year? I proclaim to you, next year at this time, you know, Mitt Romney will be president. I don't know. Just throw something out there. Weird. I proclaim to you, Obama will continue on. And then it happens. You go, wow, how do you know? <laughs> of course, there's a 50-50 chance on that one. 52-40. I don't know. Whatever the polls say. I proclaim to you that at this time next year, on this day next year, we will be sitting in a brand new built church building or my pastoring is all wrong. Boy, I better be right. <laughs> Why doesn't he do that? Why does he give a confirming word 150 years out? And the answer is very simple. God always makes room for faith first. I'm going to tell you this, and I want you to believe me. And I'm going to tell you, I will confirm this eventually. But until I confirm it, you have 150 years to believe it. Israel, I'm giving you 150 years to buy this as true. One man would. His name was Daniel. And at the end of 70 years of captivity and reading the book of Jeremiah, he realizes the word of the Lord is coming to fruition, is being fulfilled just as he promised it would be, and he believes. But most of the people don't buy it. And most don't have faith. And Jesus said, blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. I'm pointing this out because prophecy is not just future telling. Prophecy is faith developing. Part of the reason God gives us prophecy is not just so that we go, oh, that's cool, that's going to happen. It's so we can believe it before it happens. And that when it happens, we can stand up with those who believe and say, yeah, we knew this was coming. We knew this would take place. Hebrews 11.1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So let me ask you, do you have faith that God is going to do what He promised to do in the future? Do you believe the dead in Christ will rise and those who are alive in Christ will be caught up and meet them in the air and so shall always be with the Lord. You believe that? You have faith for that? Me too. Do you believe God will save the remnant of His people Israel bringing them through the fires of seven years of tribulation? Yes, I believe that. Absolutely. Do you trust Jesus to return to earth and establish the kingdom He promised to establish? Do you have faith that there is coming a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem that we will go into all eternity with the Lord. See, blessed are you because you have believed and have not yet seen. 
at all the prophecy, when we do prophecy updates, and we're going to soon, Glenn, I promise you, but when we do prophecy updates, or we talk about prophecy in the Bible, especially prophecy that is not yet fulfilled, things to come, the point is not to get excited, the point is to develop a deeper faith. The point is to believe it. And to trust the Lord to do what He said He would do to, as I like to say, to take God at His word. And that's why we're doing this tonight. John says in 1 John 3.3, Everyone who has this hope fixed on himself purifies himself just as he is pure. And John's talking about the coming of Jesus. Have faith for it. Now, the Lord gets even more specific in His prophecy. Verse 27. It is I who says to the depths, depth of the sea, be dried up. And I will make your rivers dry. Let me point something out here real quick. He doesn't say He's going to dry up the depths of the sea. He says, I'm the one who can do that. And because I'm the one who can do that, I will do this. What? I will make your rivers dry. So the prophecy is not that the sea will dry up, but the river will dry up. Read on. It is I who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and He will perform all my desire And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built. And of your temple, your foundation will be laid. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so so the gates will not be shut. I'll go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. I will give you the treasures of darkness, the hidden wealth of secret places, so that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. For the sake of Jacob my servant and Israel my chosen one, I have also called you by your name. I have also given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. I am the Lord, and there is no other beside me. There is no other God. It's a great prophecy. In Iran today, there's an ancient archaeological site. And in that site, there's a tomb. The site is called Passer God. And at Passer God, there's a tomb that stands. It's the most famous monument there in that ancient city. A large stone edifice, a sepulcher. It has six broad steps that lead up to a gabled entrance that has above it a design, a rosette design over the doorway. You can see pictures of it if you Google it. Go online and look at this. It's the tomb, they believe, of Cyrus the Great. This Cyrus. The same Cyrus talked about in Scripture. His tomb is with us in Iran to this day. This king, this ruler, named by God over a century ahead of his birth and 150 years before he would do the things that God says he's going to do. And his tomb is with us to this day. Cyrus was a real player on the historical stage. An actual guy, there's no question about it, not only from the tomb that stands there, but also from inscriptions to Cyrus the Great, Cyrus the Great of Persia, that are all over and found there in Iran, in the area around Babylon. They know Cyrus existed. We know this guy did what he did. We know what he decreed. We know a lot about Cyrus. Fascinating things. He was a famous military strategist. And he was the ruler of the world at the time that Persia ruled the world. Now, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, again, I want to invite you to step back to the other side of the historical fence. Don't look at this as we look back and we know what happened, but look at it as though we had no idea. We've never heard of Cyrus before. 
Well, we wouldn't have if we heard this from Isaiah himself because Cyrus didn't exist. So in that place, think about what God says must be fulfilled through this man. Not only does he name him twice, but he gives a very specific laundry list of the things that Cyrus is going to do. And this is it. He gives a decree. Cyrus is going to give a decree to rebuild Jerusalem and re-inhabit Judah. Again, when the people heard that, they're looking around, they're thinking, wait a minute, the city is fine, and the land is currently inhabited. What are you talking about, Isaiah? This Cyrus is going to be involved in the drying up of a major river. Which one? And, and how? What are you talking about, Isaiah? This Cyrus is going to involve the laying of a foundation for a new temple. Um, Isaiah, I hate to burst your bubble, but the Temple of Solomon is right there. What are you talking about? A new temple. This Cyrus is the one who would subdue nations and loose the loins of kings. Now that is remarkably specific. This is Bible prophecy, gang. God says there's going to be a king who needs some depends and badly. I mean, what other what other religious writing of any kind, what other God ever said, I'm going to freak out a king so bad he will wet himself? That's what he said. That's how specific this gets. He says, this Cyrus is going to be involved in the opening of shut bronze doors and iron barred gates. He's going to smooth out rough places. And he's going to have the acquisition of hordes of treasure. And all this has to be accomplished through this one guy, this guy named Cyrus. All these literal things. And by the way, Cyrus was a foreign name, not a Hebrew name. So God's saying, I'm going to do this through a foreigner who doesn't even believe in me. What? How bizarre is that? And this is the prophecy. And it's specific. Man, talk about stacking the deck. God says, I give you a confirming word. You can believe me now, or you can reject it, and 150 years from now when it happens, you can look back and go, oh, okay, I guess I should have believed. The confirming word is what Cyrus will do. Why does God do it? What is God's ultimate purpose in all of this? To, to uh, show a little sleight of hand? No. Verse 6 tells us that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. That's what I prayed earlier. I want to know that. I want to know from the rising to the setting of the sun there is no God but God. I want to wake up with God on my lips. I want to go to sleep talking to God at night. I want to be aware of Him every moment of every day from the rising to the setting that God is everything to me. That He is the great and glorious King. And that's why He gives us Bible prophecy. That's why He confirms His Word. He says, I am the Lord. There is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. There is no other. It is not okay to believe in God and accept other belief systems. It is not okay to say, well, there's Christianity and there's, and there's Islam and there's Buddhism and coexist and it's all just... It's not okay. God rails against that philosophy that is permeating this culture. That is not okay. There is no other God. I don't see how you can say it any more plainly or clearly or emphatically as the Lord does right here.